Good evening and welcome to the beautiful, historical Marionette Theater. Tonight we're visiting a mid to late 90s drama, mystery, sci-fi with a little bit of contact from another realm or something like that. (laughs) Hold on to your seats. Go ahead and get to them. The show is about to begin. Well, good evening, Toppy. How are you this fine night, sir? Uh, I've got a little bit of deja vu, but I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's almost nice enough out to have the windows open, but we got cooked not long ago, and so I'm still hiding from the sun. But uh, okay, well, I got. I'm recording with windows open. Ooh. And uh, it's just started to cool off enough that the air coming in is, is nice and cool. Mm-hmm. So, Toppy, it is June. And, uh, you know, as they say, June is busting out all over. And, uh, of course, one of the things that June is known for is gay pride in this part of the world. So, um, you know, before we talk about the film that we're going to discuss tonight... Um, we're going to just uh, briefly touch on this time of year and maybe some movie-going experiences. So do you remember maybe either your first Pride Parade or maybe the first time you went to a movie with a certain someone? Sure. Uh, I uh, I think my first Pride Parade was in Rochester. And it maybe a couple of um, parades in a couple of years and then... I got to attend the really big one in Washington, the first one, the Mm -hmm. first really big one in Washington, um, and that was huge. And uh, and then a couple years later, I went to the second one in Washington, which I think was the the last march that had the complete quilt. Oh. I think so. Well, I, um, I didn't get to go to my first Pride Parade until I moved around a bit. I lived in Dallas, Texas for a year. You'd have thought I would have caught something there, but no, it wasn't until I was living in Colorado that I went to Denver's Pride Parade, which is ginormous, I will have you know. The parade route starts about a mile or two away from the uh, ending fairgrounds, and the um, the end of the parade route is out in front of the state capitol building. There is a lovely little park there, and they have it set up as a fairgrounds. So there's plenty of food and drink and all sorts of craft tables and any little independent business under the sun you can think of. And there's even live music. Mm-hmm. And uh, Let me ask you... <clears throat> So in my first march, I had my boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, we held hands as we were walking. And I want to know if if you had a, a similar experience. I don't know if you marched alone or by yourself, but but I, I remember uh, I, had, I don't know what the word is for it. It was uneasy mm-hmm. uh, being that visible. Um, as we were holding hands and walking down the street. Um, it wasn't frightening, but it was uneasy. I remember that. And, of course, every march after that, it just 
while it was you didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. But I, the first one I do remember feeling very self-conscious and uh, uneasy. You know, I think I was probably a little uneasy, but in my uh, situation, I had the advantage of not being in my home state, so I wasn't going to be running into anyone I knew, but, um, you know, it it was quite a uh, splendid thing to behold, because Colorado, um, not that long ago, I want to say maybe five years ago now, elected their first openly gay governor. Mm-hmm. So, um, how about them apples? And, right. um, you know, and since we're talking about movies, because that's what we do, uh, I'll just give an honorable mention. I remember the first time I went to the movies where I saw a gay film. It was in college, and I went and saw Kevin Klein and Debbie Reynolds in In and Out. <laughs> I forgot Debbie Reynolds was in that. Um, <clears throat> I, I do remember seeing that movie. It was a lot of fun. Gosh, what was my first? Boy, you know, it might have been Boys in the Band. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, it's, that was probably that was probably it. That was it. Must have been Boys in the Band. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a picnic. No, no. I I, <laughs> I have seen it, and there's actually been in more recent years a remake. But I I don't think that the um. The male lead in tonight's movie was in that. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Um, but the other reason that I saw In and Out because, of course, it had Tom Selleck without the mustache. I forgot he was in it. Oh goodness! Now, um, it, you know, goes without saying that uh, I hope they paid him handsomely for that role because you would not know it was him without that the trademark stash. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It was, you know, it makes you wonder why why they they didn't give him that mustache. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, um, speaking of having a good time, I hear our senior showgirl has managed to make it in tonight. Are you there, Gertie? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. I got, uh, I got rainbow drinks and, and, uh, I just brought all kinds of, you know, rainbow things. Moves. Looks like someone's been to the party store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. By the way, you guys are paying me back for all this stuff. <laughs> okay, well, um, Toppy, it's your turn to write the check. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, Gertie, I hate to pry because I know you're a very private person. But, yes, uh, I am. But, uh, you know, you're you're one to tell us when... Uh, you you have a missed opportunity. Now, is it true that you had something going on with the leading man in this film, Mr. Matthew McConaughey? Well, this was way before he started to get all stanky, McStank stank, you understand? <laughs> well, we had a few dalliances, you might say, and he was a cute young thing, you know. Anyways, I probably shouldn't say uh, any more until my... Um, my autobiography, you know. Uh-huh, okay. Tell-all. It's a tell-all. Ah, uh, yes, those uh, NDAs there that our publishers have us sign, uh, which stands for non-disclosure agreement for those not in the know. Well, oh, uh, yeah, that's what that means. <laughs> well, madame, if you will get those cute little tootsies down to the stage, we'd like to tell the folks what we're watching tonight. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. There she goes.
is a scientist and a dreamer. She was a gifted student, but lost her parents early. In spite of this reality, her talents have gotten her far. Now, Ellie spends her time looking for answers amongst the stars. That is, until one day she's faced with losing her job. As she rises to the occasion, she stumbles across the opportunity of a lifetime to make contact with beings not of this earth. Just when Ellie thinks she's ready to make the ultimate sacrifice, in comes a handsome stranger. Will she fall for the oldest trick in the book, or will she reach for those stars? Grab a telescope and a box of Cracker Jacks. It's time for Contact with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey before he got stinky. Oh, sorry. Uh, Take it away, fellas. What do you get when you take a dash to the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies and a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Oh, so we're back in the 90s, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to pop anyone's balloon, but that was more than 25 years ago, so, you know, there's been an anniversary for this film, I'm sure. Well, <clears throat> I suppose, uh... Is it today? Is it this year? Um, actually, I think it might have been last year. So we're oh, last year. yeah, like it's like twenty six years ago now. Okay. Um, well, I, it's hard to believe. As a matter of fact, so long ago, DJ set the stage for us and say, tell us what was happening in nineteen ninety seven uh, in the U.S. of A. U.S. history in nineteen ninety seven. Well, back then I was freshly out of high school. But Bill Clinton, the 42nd U.S. president, began his second term in office. In space, the astronauts from the Space Shuttle Discovery began the tune-up and repair work on the Hubble Space Telescope, a longly anticipated mission. And I remember staying up late at night and watching it, and it was like just uh, watching paint dry because they had to move so slowly with those delicate tools. <laughs> So the and uh, in '97, the United States government acknowledges existence of the secret in quotations war in Laos, that's over there in um, you know in Asia, and uh, dedicated the Laos memorial among uh, and other secret war uh, to secret war veterans. President Clinton issued a formal apology to the surviving victims of the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male and their families. And there was actually a movie about uh, the Tuskegee uh, Air uh, Program. I'm forgetting uh, the title of it. Might have actually just been uh, the Tuskegee Project. But uh, also, Maybe. also in '97, the United States Department of the Treasury unveiled a new $50 bill. This one was meant to be less, more difficult to counterfeit. So you know, it probably looked more like Canadian money. <laughs> in movie news, Walt Disney, The Mouse House, brought out their 35th feature film, Hercules. And it was loosely based on a legendary mythological hero of the same name. 
It was released to positive reviews, but it underperformed at the box office in comparison to its most recent predecessors. Uh, pay attention, folks. That probably means we're due to talk about it someday. All right. So in 97 also, Men in Black was released in theaters. The first of at least three films. Some say more. NASA's Pathfinder space probe landed on the surface of Mars. That was a big one. And uh, also in 97, Steve Jobs, the the head guy that was uh, in charge of Apple, well, he left and he came back again. And it was announced at Macworld in Boston. At the same time, Microsoft bought 150 million shares of the financially troubled Apple computer at the time. So, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And in October of that year, the first color photograph appeared on the front page of the New York Times. Can you believe it, Toppy? Well, no, I can't. (laughs) But, um, no, I can't. Hmm. I can't believe that. That's hard to believe. I I wonder what they chose to be their first color ad. Hmm. And uh, rounding things out in 97, in the world of telecom, because, you know, we used to have to have cords and things used to be on the wall for us to talk to our friends. Well, back then, WorldCom and MCI, which was that long-distance company that gave us friends and family. You know, the Star Trek actors used to talk about their long-distance plan that they used to use to call each other. Well, uh, they announced a $37 billion merger to form MCI WorldCom, which at the time was the largest merger in U.S. history. And then in movie news rounding out 97, James Cameron's Titanic, the highest grossing film of all time, came out in 97. It was the highest grossing film until, until James Cameron's Avatar in 2009. Now, just an aside, I remember when Titanic came out, Toppy, and I remember my ex had a thing for younger gentlemen. Now, get your mind out of the gutter. I was legal. I was over 21 even. But I remember at the time thinking that Leonardo DiCaprio looked underage in that film. Now, come to find out in more recent years, I've looked this up and he and I are about the same age. Okay. <laughs> Phew, that was, that's a relief. Yeah. So, you know, it was uh, almost long enough ago that someone might have darkened a doorstep, but uh, who of fame left us in 97, Toppy? What, who were there celebrities that uh, passed that year? Well, that year we saw the passing of Robert Mitchum at 80, John Denver, American musician at 54. He's plane ran out of gas, don't you know? Hmm. Uh, Don Mezik, okay. Voice actor for a Hanna-Barbera, mostly. He's known for doing Scooby-Doo. He does a lot of snickering animals. <laughs> and, and animals that don't really talk, but they somehow talk, like Scooby-Doo. Any days, he, he did Hoppy in the Flintstones. He did Astro in the Jetsons. He did Motley in the Wacky Races. He did Boo Bear. Well, Boo Bear talked. Uh, he did the, um, uh, Sebastian the Cat, who well, a cat that snickered <laughs> in Josie and the Pussycats. And uh, he did the... Um, uh, seems like there was another snickering thing. Uh, maybe Hampton Peep J. Pig in Tiny Toon. Uh, or uh, I don't know. But anyways, he also did Dr. Benton Quest and Johnny Quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, far from snickering. And uh, also we saw the passing of 
Andra Lindley uh, with uh, an American theater television actress known for her role uh, of the landlord's wife wife on Three's Company. Hmm. So she was Mrs. Roper, right? She was. Okay. All right. So the the program we're talking about tonight was a movie. It went out to theaters. So, you know, there were some date nights that took place. And uh, just to get your mind into the perspective of what was competing for your dollar back then, what was uh, in maybe uh, your your um, attention, the top of the box office. So, Contact. Well, <laughs> that's actually a little bit of a surprise. We're usually a fan of the underdog here. But somehow... Contact actually got around the top. It was number 13. So it brought in 99 million. So, you know, they they um, they were able to... Uh, Jodie Foster was able to cash her check. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, in the top of the box office that year, number one was Men in Black with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And it also, of course, brought us Mr. Tony Shalhoub, who later on did Monk on USA. No. Right. Now, if 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 um, uh, uh, Titanic came out, wouldn't that have been the number one movie? You would think so, but it must have been. Um, it, it must have been. It it, it it hit it big, but it wasn't in the very top three. Um, let's see now. The number two in the theaters was a sequel. It was The Lost World, which was a Jurassic Park film. Of course, it had Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore, and it brought in two hundred and twenty-nine million. So, you know, it was enough to make at least another couple of more. And, uh, you know, since Contact actually did fairly okay, to give you an idea what was just one better, the aforementioned Disney film, Hercules, that brought in $99.1 million. It had the voices of Tate Donovan and one of the stars of tonight's film, Mr. James Woods. And just a rung below Contact at number 14... Is a, a film with somebody who could have stinky feet too, Mr. Tom Cruise, uh, Renee Zellweger, and up-and-coming child actor Jonathan Lipnicki. Say that three times fast. Fourteen was Jerry Maguire at eighty-eight point two million. All right. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's talk about the director. Well, we actually uh, have a trailer oh, for yes. tonight's film. Uh, yeah. That's okay. So, um, you know, this uh, the the actual trailer for the film has quite a bit of visual elements in it. So just to set this up, when you do see the trailer, the very beginning of it has Jodie Foster as Dr. Ellie Arroway sitting in the field listening to the radio telescope with her headphones. So uh, when this trailer begins, it's after that silence and the introductions. <laughs> of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked interferometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. I want all these people out of here. You're having sent this announcement all over the world may well constitute a breach of national security. Boy, this isn't a person-to-person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention. The president's called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This says structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately. There's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. There's no proof of that. Why don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language. Center. Buried within the message itself is the key 
to decoding it. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. Nobody's saying this is dangerous. They're going to build it. Who gets to go, though? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why? I would have been on the edge of my seat. Mm-hmm. So, Toppy, tell us a little bit about the person behind the camera who made this movie, the director. So, that would be Robert Lee Zemeckis. And you know him because he was the director of some pretty very well-known films, starting with Romancing the Stone in 84, Back to the Future, actually, all three of them between 85 and 90 uh he was the guy that was behind uh, directing who framed roger rabbit and then uh death becomes her in 92 all big hits and then of course he's known for forrest gump in 94 and he won the academy award for best director for that one uh and that movie also won best picture so uh, he graduated from USC in 73, and uh, he took some uh, top student awards at USC for his uh, student film, A Field of Honor. Uh, one of his first big breaks uh, was writing a script for Kolchak the Night Stalker in 1975. That's a kind of a uh, monster of the week kind of TV show. <clears throat> and starred Darren McGavin. And he wrote the episode titled The Chopper, um, which was a takeoff of the Headless Horseman legend, but this was a guy who didn't have a head, and he rode a motorcycle and carried a sword. Uh, so Zemeckis later came to the attention of none other than Steven Spielberg, and uh, Spielberg became Zemeckis's mentor and executive produced his first two films, I Want to Hold Your Hand in 78, and Used Cars in 1980. Both of these movies were received uh, well, critically, but they were not commercial blockbusters by any means. And Zemeckis, unfortunately, kind of gained a reputation for writing scripts that everyone thought were great, but somehow just didn't translate into movies people wanted to see. And uh, the director was kind of jobless until 1984 when uh, Michael Douglas hired him to direct his movie Romancing the Stone, which was expected to be a flop, really. Nobody had uh, too much hope for it. And... uh, and actually, it became a, a big hit, a sleeper hit. Uh, it was in the in the uh, out in the public eye for quite some time, and it just uh, more and more people started to go and see it. After romancing, um, Zemeckis finally had to clout to direct his time traveling screenplay starring Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future. Of course, that was wildly successful, and uh, he did two sequels for it. 
and then of course uh, Death Becomes Her and Forrest Gump and so on and so forth um, and uh, you know suddenly Zemeckis was uh, very high in demand as far as people wanting uh, and, and he was able to choose at that point any, any projects he want, wanted to do after that so uh, A Tale of Rags Riches Robert Zemeckis now, what would you say is probably your favorite of those that he made, Toppy? Oh, I would have to say maybe um, a movie that's not mentioned here, but gee whiz, I think he did it. Didn't he do Castaway? Oh, you know, you're probably right. That was a good film, and it was actually a very different role for Tom Hanks at the time. Yeah, I actually think that might be one of my favorites. Forrest Gump is is great. Uh um, but I, I think I, I think I, I really uh, really you know well actually duh contact maybe maybe <laughs> right up there but one one of those two I would have to agree that contact is really up there and uh, I love Death Becomes Her it's you know it's a cult classic so it's probably due for uh, an honorable mention someday with us. But one of the films that's on that list that I am due for a rewatch is Cocoon, because it has the incomparable Jessica Tandy in it. And that lady, she is right up there in my book with Ruth Gordon. All right. Great. <laughs> well, I like her, too. Um so, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, someone told me Gertie's going to be serving drinks. Is, mm-hmm. is that now or later? Oh, well, you know, we are at about the halfway mark in the show. So we're going to step on over here, and uh, Gertie is serving up some cocktails. She she said that they're, they're just say gay, which I guess you're not allowed to do in some states, but I don't think I'd want to live there, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, say gay cocktails, kids. Ooh. Uh, tequila, oh, watermelon juice, lime, lemon juice, grenadine, and, uh, you know, popping a lime wheel for garnish. Ooh. Anyways, they're lovely, and I've mixed up some for everyone. <laughs> Mostly me. Ooh, so it's like you're going to take a good picture instead of cheese. You say gay. All right. Yeah, say gay. <laughs> <laughs> so for your listening enjoyment, um, we're going to reel on out Texas Tammy, or at least that's what I like to call her. This is the Dallas Morning News uh, personality, Bobby Wyant. And, um, well, if you're late to the party, not that long ago, we discussed the film at the beginning of Jodie Foster's career, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. And, uh, well, Miss Bobby kind of uh, asked some questions that were a little appropriate of a young adult. But I guess they, they must have paid Jodie to appear on camera because she came back for an interview. And here it is. And another spectacular performance in okay. contact. Congratulations. It's a great movie. I really love this film. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing how Robert Zemeckis was able to make this film so exciting and such a great adventure. You know, a real just summer blast with an incredible ride at the end and all that exciting stuff. And then to really have it be about a personal story about people. To have such a strong intelligence to it and yes. to have it be so human and so emotional. Uh, I, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I would have had to choose one or the other. <laughs> The, some of the final scenes where you are in what you people call the pod, yes. 
Now, what was going on there? Was it a gimbal to set, or what were they doing with all that vibration and everything? So many things. There were so many sets and so many chairs and so many different pods, um, each one that had a different, uh, a different reason. Um, it took a very long time to shoot out that sequence, and uh, it probably was the hardest part of the movie uh, because I was all by myself, and there were no other actors around, and I was strapped to a chair, and usually there were blue screens around me, and I had no idea what I was looking at. So, um, it, it, not only that, it was about an hour and a half to two hours in between takes. <laughs> so, we were, I was really having a hard time there. Uh, but uh, it just goes to show you, you know, it, I was just absolutely surprised when I saw it. Uh, the magic of movies, you know, how, how, uh, how, how incredible uh, the vision of the film can change what the actual reality was. Well, the whole setting was just magnificent. Now, for you, the actress going through all that rock and roll stuff, uh, did it ever bother you physically? Yeah, I had a bad moment there. I had uh, about two days, two days, and the, the, the third day, luckily, was a Saturday on a weekend. And I, uh, I woke up and had, you know, uh, a vertigo and um, uh, sort of you know, nausea and stuff. And I realized I was really kind of having a, an inner ear drama there. So I asked them to, you know, maybe we could move on to another sequence before we went back to that one because I was really having a hard time. And then, I, of course, I had seen that 60 Minutes thing on violent shaking and how they use it for torture, uh, <laughs> torture in, uh, you know, in Israel. And I thought, wait, this isn't good. <laughs> what about my brain cells? <laughs> Well, you're smart enough. You could lose a few and still be ahead of most of us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The, um, there is a scene also where you are uh, it, assimilating weightlessness. Now, were you actually in weightlessness, or well, how did they do that? There is no way on the planet Earth to have weightlessness. Uh, you, can, you can simulate a little bit in water, but that's the closest we can get. Uh, and obviously, we, we couldn't shoot it in water. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you have to try everything that you can. I, I saw a lot, a lot, a lot of film on, on weightlessness and spoke to a lot of pe to people who had been weightless and who had been in that wonderful aircraft that, the, uh, that NASA has. Um, and uh, we just tried to do the best we could. And I guess it works. Yes, it does. <laughs> well, it, it resembles very much that scene in Apollo 13 where the guys were actually weightless in that aircraft. Yes, we had a lot of people that had worked on that movie, and uh, uh, they, they, they told us that vomiting was a big thing in there. <laughs> and that was pretty much the, the, the only sensation they remember <laughs> is a bad one in the stomach. You know what they called it, the vomit comet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Jody, once again, it's great to see you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, I'm glad and you did. on so many levels, it's very intelligent, very provocative, mm -hmm. but at the same time, a very exciting film. Thank you. And it's good to see you. You too. Take care. Take care. <laughs> and I won't see you again unless they pay me more. <laughs> so we have a boatload of people that made up the cast of this film. And I'll start things off by talking about our leading lady who we just heard of interview with. So Jodie Foster, who plays Dr. Ellie Arroway in Contact. She was born in the City of Angels, Los Angeles. She began in acting at the age of seven. And uh, she appeared in commercials for Crest Toothpaste. And, um, oh, I want to say uh, it, it was a, a suntan lotion. I'm forgetting the name right now. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I want to say Tropicana, but that's orange juice. <laughs> Anyways, our first film was Napoleon and Samantha, which came out in 72. 
and it had Mr. Michael Douglas and Will Gear, the the kindly grandpa from the Waltons. Foster was injured by a lion and still bears the scars to this day. Contact was her thirteenth film, so she's no, no, no. oh thirtieth. Oh goodness, I stumbled thirtieth film. Hi. Oh, Gertie, I'll have another. <laughs> in the five years leading up to this film, Foster would appear in three more films, including Summersby with Richard Gere, and then uh, a film with Mel Gibson and James Garner, Maverick. Now, the film just prior to Contact was Nell, which featured Liam Neeson and Natasha Richardson. And her film after was Anna and the King, which was based upon the musical The King and I. However, this did not have any music. Came out in 99 with up-and-coming actor Chow Yun-Fat. In the years that would follow Contact, Foster would appear in another three films, including, uh, well, the aforementioned uh, Anna and the King and The Dangerous Lives of Altar Boys. Now, this is a film that stars the brother of the Home Alone kid, not Macaulay, but Kieran Culkin. Also starred Jenna Malone, who was young Ellie Arroway in Contact, and Vincent D'Onofrio. That was in 2002, The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys. Then also in 2002, she was in a film with Kristen Stewart, you know, that up-and-coming actress that was in the, uh, the movies about uh, teenage vampires. Well, um, and also... Forrest Whitaker and up and coming Jared Leto. She was in Panic Room in 2002. And Jodie Foster continues to work in film, uh, both in front of and behind the camera. Her latest film was in 2021, and it was called The Mauritanian, which also starred Benedict Cumberbatch. And this was a legal drama about a West African Muslim suspect in 9 11 who fights for his release after years, plural, years of detainment by the U.S. without charges. To date, Jodie Foster has 81 acting credits and received two Oscars even before she was 30. Right, and she received an Oscar for... uh, What's the movie where she was a rape victim? Oh, was that Nell? uh, No, no, no. Oh. Uh, It was a trial movie. She received an Oscar for that, and then she received an Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. I believe. That's correct. One thing um, Foster <laughs> doesn't do well is, is playing dummies. You'll notice most of the roles she's in, she's uh, she usually plays a very smart uh, person. The closest I could think of is to her playing kind of a dummy is... She was horribly miscast for Maverick. Mm-hmm. What a terrible movie, and she was so not right for that part. And it's because she was playing a, a floozy, dopey girl. Um, that's not that's not what Foster should be cast in. Oh, that's a throwback, though. Didn't she get her career in, uh, started her career in Taxi Driver? But she didn't, she was a very <laughs> smart that was a very smart character. She, uh-huh. wasn't, uh, she wasn't a dummy. I know. Um, but, yeah. Um, uh, so let's talk about Matthew McConaughey, her co-star. He played Palmer Joss. Uh, he was born in 69. 
His breakout role was a supporting performance in the coming-of-age comedy Dazed and Confused in 93, and uh, he had a number of supporting roles, but his first success as a leading man came in the legal drama A Time to Kill, 1996. That was a really good movie. Uh, his, his career progressed with lead roles in Contact and the historical drama Amistad and the war film U-571. That was in 2000. And he also started appearing uh, in the 2000s in a string of romantic comedies, uh, such as The Wedding Planner, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, Failure to Launch, Fool's Gold, and Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. All of those were in the 2001 to 2009, and it kind of established him as a sex symbol. Um, all those movies. Uh, he took a two-year hiatus from acting in 2011, and when he came back, he was appearing in more dramatic roles, beginning with the legal drama The Lincoln Lawyer in 2012, and he gained even wider praise for his role as a stripper <laughs> in Magic Mike and a fugitive in Mud. Uh, but it was uh, McConaughey's portrayal of Ron Woodruff a cowboy diagnosed with AIDS in the biopic Dallas Buyers Club in 2013 that earned him his uh, the greatest praise and uh, accolades, including winning the Academy Award for Best Actor. He followed it up with a supporting role in The Wolf of Wall Street, where he starred as Rust Cole in the first season. Oh, he also starred uh had a starring role as Russ Cole in the first season of HBO's crime anthology series True Detective in 2014. He was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for that. Most recently, you would have, uh, perhaps, if you were a follower of the Yellowstone series with Kevin Costner, and it seems like everybody is, uh, <clears throat> you might have heard that... Uh, while Kevin Costner is going to be gone, um, there is a going to be a new series related to Yellowstone, and McConaughey will be in the new title role. Hmm. All righty. So, another member of the cast who some might say is actually an even bigger star, if you can imagine, is the guy who played the eccentric... Uh, entrepreneur that sort of saves the day, S.R. Haddon. And I'm talking about none other than John Hurt. Mr. Hurt was born in the United Kingdom, and he had a strict upbringing. His father was a clergyman, which meant that he was elected to uh, a position in the church. And the family lived opposite a cinema. That, that's theater for us Americans. But he, or a uh, movie house. But he was not allowed to visit the movies. However, watching theater was considered fine and encouraged particularly by his mother, who took him regularly to the repertory theater in Cleothorps. Who must have been the nearest big town. His parents disliked his later acting ambitions and encouraged him to become an art teacher instead. He was also not permitted to mix with the local children because, in his parents' view, they were too common. He began... 
<laughs> right. He began acting in the early 60s, and after his first decade in the industry, he would land the role of the executive officer, or XO for us, in that uh, short form there, uh, who ended up being an android by the name of Kane in Ridley Scott's Alien from 79, which also starred Sigourney Weaver in the lead, and another member of tonight's film's cast, Mr. Tom Skerritt. Contact tonight's film was John Hurt's 68th film. This guy was making movies in his sleep. In the five years before, he would appear in 14 films, including a film in 95 with Jeff Bridges and Diane Lane called Wild Bill. Also in 95, he starred in a film with Liam Neeson and Jessica Lange called Rob Roy. And in 93, he starred in a film with Uma Thurman and Keanu Reeves called Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Sounds like a country song. (laughs) In the five years after, Hurt would appear in 1717 more films, including a film in 98 with Brenda Blythen, one of our favorites here. It was a film called Night Train. And in 99, he starred with uh, Matrix Heartthrob, Carrie Ann Moss, and -and up-and-coming comic actor Sean Wayans in New Blood. And then many will remember him for uh, a a cameo in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which is the first installment in the series in 2001. In the last four years of his life, which, uh, of course, it should be noted that Herp was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2015. He appeared in 18 films in the last four years of his life, including a film with Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton, a really good sci-fi thriller called Snowpiercer. It's a post-apocalypse film. Check it out. And before his passing in 2017, at the age of 77, Hurt's last appearance in a theatrical release was in the 2016 film Jackie, which was about the former first lady and widow of JFK, starring Natalie Portman in the lead. By the time of his passing, Hurt had a total of 98 acting credits. And I know he did some stage work, too. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was on Broadway or just in the UK, but he portrayed the Elephant Man in The Elephant Man. Uh, I think it was was on Broadway um, uh, to great acclaim. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the full cast of tonight's movie, Contact, uh, was uh, Tom Skerritt had a significant role. James Wood was a nasty senator or congressman uh and uh, uh james fitchner fitchner uh sounds like a sneezed um is in it who did he play do we know i can't i don't oh, know oh goodness well let's take a look see you go ahead and talk about the next guy and i'll look that up all right well then uh, uh this crazy nut job is played by jake Busey as only the son of Gary Busey could. My God, they... In fact, if nobody told me, I would have just said, yeah, that's Gary Busey in that movie. They look so much alike. Um, But it's his son, Jake, and uh, he plays uh, just um, um, this great uh, villain who sort of... uh, 
what do we want to say sort of a cult leader mm. and um and he he really uh shakes things up oh yeah he was an evangelist an evangelist yeah Yes, and um, the guy that you were trying to think of is actually William Fickner, and I've seen him on a, a few television programs, but this was the first I had ever seen him on screen. His character was actually a, a, a turn on a comic nerd fandom. He was Kent Clark. <laughs> okay. But In this he, movie? Yes, and oh. and he was the blind scientist with the gift for listening to fine details. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, I, I know. Uh, yeah, that that's uh, interesting. He he played an interesting character. Sorry, I didn't recognize. Oh, that's him. okay. Now, Toppy, I'm wondering. I'm sure that you have a different experience than I. But what was the first film that you had seen Tom Skerritt in? Boy, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Alien. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the first uh, thing uh, I remember. And later I found out he was in an episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker mm. um, that I, I since recognized him in. But really, I think it was Alien. I can't think of anything. If I saw him in something else, it would have been, a, again, a case of who's that guy? I sure as hell don't know. Mm. And couldn't connect a name with him. It was after Alien, you could you could finally say, yeah, that guy's Tom Skerritt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but he was in many, you know, he was in a lot of movies. He also did a TV series called Picket Fences. Yeah, and um, now I actually had seen him in a film before this, but he's also quite famously known as playing the father figure in Julia Roberts' big breakout movie, Steel Magnolias, with Sally, oh. Sally, um, bah. I, I almost Field. said, yes, Field, not Struthers. <laughs> yeah, he plays uh, Sally Field's husband. Yeah, he's great in that. Yeah, but the film that I saw Tom scared in first, before I knew who he was and that he'd been in other things, was a little gem from the 80s, which starred the um, the uh, the mom from Back to the Future, Leah Thompson, who in more recent years has gone behind the camera. She's directing nowadays. But I, I was uh, Tom Skerritt was in a film called Space Camp, and oh. uh, what's terrific about that movie is that it stars uh, director Steven Spielberg's future wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, so Toppy Contact came out in '97. Did you see it in theaters? I did. Um, uh, I was looking forward to it. Uh, because uh, I've never read any of his books, but I was kind of a fan, not kind of, I was a fan of Carl Sagan, who wrote the novel that the movie is based on. And um, because Pickle Hollows, DJ, I mean, yeah, DJ just showed a, a copy of that book. <laughs> um, and... Uh, because I lived in Pickle Hollow, which is very close to uh, Ithaca, New York, um, Ithaca was Carl Sagan's home uh, when he taught at Cornell University, and um, kind of a, kind of a local legend slash hero. And uh, we have a thing here in 
Ithaca, where it's called the Carl Sagan Walk, and you, uh, it's a, uh, it's a map of the solar system, and you start at the sun, and you walk until you get to all the planets, and, uh, they, it's measured in such a way that the, the measurement is accurate in terms of how close one planet is from another. And boy, you go you go past Mars, and the next time you get to a planet, well, you know, uh, is there, uh, once you get past Earth, I should say, the next time you get to the next planet, you you just keep walking, <laughs> and you you start to get a, a feel of wow how far apart these planets are. Uh, another thing, um, even before I knew what was who, when I was in grade school, there was this whole big old deal about this satellite being sent into space. Uh, and of course, I'm um, talking about Voyager. Is that what it was called? Uh -huh. Right? Yes. Voyager. Yeah. Uh, it's the famous one that has the, um, the gold panel uh, that has sounds recorded in it and uh, depictions of a man and a woman and uh, sounds from uh, I guess every language on earth and and the voices of children blah 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 and um, I just remember that that was a huge deal for some reason uh, when I was in junior high and, and it was like this big deal thing that was going on I guess probably because Satan was in Ithaca at that time and it just was like a local connection. And um, so that's that's really what led me to go see the film. I wasn't a huge fan of, of uh, Jodie Foster or anyone else in the movie. Um, it was really Carl Sagan that brought me to see it, and I wasn't disappointed, and uh, I was gobsmacked by the movie. Um, it was thrilling, and it was wondrous, just wondrous. You know, um, when this film came out, I was just starting college, so I wasn't really um, making a paycheck or anything to where I could take myself to the movies. In fact, I think the first time I saw Contact was a number of years later, but more importantly... When I was at the store buying my first DVD player, I had not even rented this yet. I knew that it was a, a movie I wanted to see. Jodie Foster was in it. So the first film on DVD I bought was Contact. And I was not disappointed. And, uh, you know, as, as uh, Toppy and I were talking about behind the curtain before the show, how we saw I rent it because I couldn't find my copy. But, you know, Toppy, uh, he's he's confessed to me that um, even though he's downsized in recent years, um, well, how did you see it? Well, one of the few DVDs I didn't send to the secondhand store was Contact. <laughs> so that's, that's how much I like it. It's, it has watchability times 100. Mm -hmm. um, and the best thing I like about it is... It it uh, it contrasts faith in God and faith in science. That's that's the movie right there, and that b 
both believing in either one, science or God, at the end of the day, it comes down to faith. Faith that the science is right, faith that yada yada, of course, faith in God, uh, and how this faith, you know, should be uniting uh, people of opposite sides. Um, and of course, it doesn't, but. Uh, but uh, McConaughey plays a person of faith, Foster plays a person of science, and even though they're briefly lovers for a time, uh, they can't reconcile their differences in faith and science. And at the end of the movie, Foster doesn't I don't think she's entirely aware of it until it comes out of her mouth, but her belief in, in, in the science really comes down to, because I just believe it to be true, and in other words, faith. And, um, and I, even she's surprised by that revelation. So I just think it's, a, it, it's got gigantic themes. Um, its depiction of the alien worlds and the and the travel, the trip through the war pole or whatever it was she went through, is so brilliant. Uh, you, it's it's amazing. Yeah, the the characters had they came from different worlds, so to speak, as you were saying. One being faith and religion, and one being in science. And the, the journey of this story brought them together because in the end, it was all about the fact that they both had significant experience that led them down the paths that they have led. But even though they had different lives, now they've come to a point where they can agree on certain things. You know, maybe you don't like <laughs> um, deep dish pizza, but you really like pepperoni or mushroom. So we're going to agree on that. And after the experience she had, as you were saying, Matthew McConaughey's character, who's a man of faith, he started to see the the fragile the fragile nature of her. Because now people are questioning whether or not she saw what she did and experienced what she did, which is exactly what somebody from a science background would approach religion by. Right, because she comes back from this experience with zero evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, she, they they don't see that she's gone anywhere because uh, no time had passed she she was in a, a construct that resembled a ball. The ball dropped and fell into the ocean. And as far as everyone's concerned, they got her out, and that was the end of it. But she has a different story. Her story is that while she was in this capsule, she went somewhere, and she saw some stuff, and she spoke to something. And there's no evidence. What the recording device she had didn't work there's a bit at the end a little twilight zone punch where someone says hmm did you know 
that her recording device didn't just stop working. It recorded for like 18 minutes or something. Oh, yeah. And those were the right. government types that were talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's like this 18-minute recording of nothing. Oh, no. 18 and, hours. Oh, 18 hours. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... It's they, they they say it's interest. What interests me? <laughs> it's like it's interesting that it not yeah. only recorded static, but approximately eighteen hours of it. <laughs> right. But the, the whole movie, uh, from from the beginning to she first hears the sound uh, from the array of of these uh, recording things, the telescopes or sound uh, recording devices, and uh, to the whole way, it's slowly revealed to you what's coming through. It's it's a, a noise. It's a signal. No, the signal has information. What's the information? And finally, they figure out a way to decode it. And the first thing they see is a Nazi cross. <laughs> yes. So uh, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a, uh, a roller coaster ride. Uh, I, I think it was great that that that. Uh, that um, her character totally believes she's going to be the one picked to ride in this construct that the signal has sent them the directions to make and suddenly no uh, they don't pick her they pick Scarrett Tom Scarrett and the disappointment is you know and but she she becomes the good soldier and goes on as a consultant until Scarrett's character dies in a terrorist attack um, and finally they have you know they got they got to pick her she's the only one else who could do it mm-hmm. anyways it's all it's all a great story with grand scope and absolutely great performances uh, when she, when Foster is testifying in the courtroom at the end, and trying to tell people what she believes she saw, that is genius stuff right there. That yeah. is good stuff. That is incredible acting. Yeah, and up until his passing, because uh, Carl Sagan was still alive while the film was being uh, made or put together, at least, the intent was that he would have a cameo in that committee on that panel. And, of course, um, you know... Uh, Fate played a role in that, and unfortunately, he was no longer with us at the time. But when Contact came out, it was a very important time for a lot of folks. And of course, as a sci-fi nerd, I will have to point this out. Just two years before Contact came out, Star Trek started a new installment in its franchise. And for the very first time ever, it had a woman captain. And not only did it have a woman captain, but she was a scientist. <laughs> so yeah. the, the, the parallels are quite strong that something like this would shortly thereafter come down the pike. So a um, couple of takeaways, a little bit of trivia about this movie that some might find interesting. The sound effect that was used when uh, they received the signal from the alien civilization was actually taken from a, uh, a existing sound effect from Doctor Who 
the sound <laughs> of the ship traveling. It was, um, you know, put through the computer and they 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 altered it slightly, but it has uh, a lot of similarities. Um, and uh, some of the other things that uh, occurred in the movie were purely tributes to Dr. Carl Sagan when Jodie Foster wore an outfit quite similar to what I am here on YouTube. Um, she wore a tweed jacket with a turtleneck, which is something that was very... Wait a minute. This is, this is... No, she didn't wear that, did she? She did. Okay. When, when she went to her last round of appearances to drive up donations and uh, get investors... She was in a large conference room with a round table, and that's when she came to the attention of the eccentric entrepreneur. But she was wearing a outfit very similar to what Doctor Sagan was known to have worn because he was a okay. he was a man of simple style. Um, some would say that he, uh, in our time, the the persons who have. Um, resembled his dress as someone like Steve Jobs would always be just t-shirt and jeans kind of a thing, comfort level. But, um, you know, uh, tribute to Dr. Sagan in that. And uh, let's see, the armor that Jodie Foster wore when she was going to be traveling had a very Knights of the Round Table look to it. In fact, mm -hmm. the art was inspired by images of Joan of Arc. And uh, so, but yes, uh, Contact is a, is a very powerful movie, as we were saying, comparing the two um, paths of, of uh, faith, science, and religion, and the similarities between... And it even has a message from the alien civilization that, of course, that you're not alone. And for those of you uh, who are just too young to have known Carl Sagan, uh, he was beloved by his students because he was so captivating. He was uh, able to communicate grand things in, a, in an easy-to-understand, entertaining way. He was a very charismatic teacher. And out of that came a chance for him to communicate more of this to many more people when he and others funded uh, a, um, I don't know, two or three or four miniseries called Cosmos, um, which was remade more recently by uh, today's great thinker. I can't think of his name. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, thank you. And, um, and of course, Sagan had a very characteristic way of speaking and people just loved it and, and he became a darling of talk shows. So he made many appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and he became famous for saying, uh, people would imitate him by saying, billions uh, and his, that he may have saying it, said it only once in Cosmos, saying billions of stars. But that's <laughs> that became a thing. Billions, and when people wanted to to say there's a whole lot of things, people would say in his voice, billions of hamburgers or whatever. It just was a thing. <laughs> um, so uh, if you ever wanted to seek 
say to themselves, uh, find uh, Cosmos, and you'll see why people loved him. Oh, yeah, and taking it back a moment, um, you know, another time when uh, Dr. Sagan was imitated was in a film that we've discussed in the past right here on Matinee Minutia. The 1987 film with Dan Aykroyd and Kim Basinger, My Stepmother is an Alien. He was, uh, he was uh, prank-calling one of the... Uh, well, actually, Dan Aykroyd's character's boss so that he could uh, sneak into the lab. But anyways, all right. So, um, but yes, uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention I don't think they could have picked a better actor to play the eccentric entrepreneur S.R. Haddon. Mr. John Hurt played this role so brilliantly, and I read that he was told that Haddon was the sort of person that was like, if you could imagine, Bill Gates if he lost his mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that the the single greatest moment of the whole film is when Ellie... Uh, Jodie Foster's character finds herself aboard Haddon's private jet after this accident has occurred, this travesty, where the American version of the machine is just destroyed through a uh, terrorist attack. And he says to her, they still want an American to go, doctor. <laughs> the first rule in government spending. Why have one when you could have two? It tries the price. <laughs> it was a great reveal because that's when it was revealed that the whole time the Americans had been making this machine, he, I guess in Japan, he funded a second machine. So when the first one got destroyed in an explosion by that terrible Gary Busey, I mean, I mean Jake Busey, uh, suddenly we find out, oh, here's another machine. Oh, and he he does it. He delivers the line so well too. It's just so, um, I don't want to say methodical, but maniacal. He says he's talking about the employees that built the other machine, and he's like, who. Also, just so happened to be recently acquired wholly subsidiaries of his company. He's like Haddon Industries. And Jodie Foster says it in chorus with him as he says the name of his company. And she's like, well, of course, what other company? <laughs> oh, so, Toppy, here we are out at the lobby. And uh, this is where we tell folks about other programs they might enjoy if they like contact and you know if you haven't seen it have you been living under a rock this film's 26 years old people and the book came out in 1985 i think that uh the uh, the challenger disaster had not yet happened i think that uh dr sagan's book came out when the spirit of the challenger was still very much alive all right so i'll go First, I'm going to recommend a film from more recent years. This is from 2018. It's also a drama mystery with some sci-fi. Stars the uh, former stars of The X-Files and more recently Netflix's Sex Education, Gillian Anderson. It's about a college student who sees a UFO and uses his exceptional math skills to investigate the sighting with his friends while the FBI follows closely behind 
in a film called just simply UFO from 2018. All right, good choice. I I need to see that. Um, oddly enough, the movie I picked stars Gilly, Gillian Anderson, um, and it's The X-Files. And uh, at first you might think, huh? But I think The X-Files captures, in a completely different way, the same scope of wonderment and conspiracy and uh, terrorism that um, contact dishes up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I similar enough in that way that to me, I think if you enjoyed Contact, you'd like the original X-Files movie uh, from 1988. Oh, 98, just the year after Contact. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I'd recommend. All right. So, Toppy... Uh, here we are, and before we say goodnight, uh, we've got to tell our folks, our listeners, what's coming up next. So if you would be so kind, grab that bag of coins the magician left us. All right, here we go. Okay, we're going to put that in the machine and find out what's coming up next. Ooh, a capsule. Ooh. All right, uh, allow me. To read what's inside. <laughs> a late 80s drama. Folks, it's going to be a sci-fi thriller again. Uh, and it's going to be... This is a little obscure, but it's kind of fun. Uh, you're not going to believe who's in it. It's uh, you, uh, uh, Chris Christopherson. Who's his co-star? You might ask. Why, it's Cheryl Ladd. <laughs> uh, and the movie is called Millennium. And uh, it's by the director of Logan's Run and the Martians Chronicles. Uh, and it's about an NTSB investigator seeking the cause of an airline disaster who meets a warrior woman from 1,000 years in the future. So next time, that would be Friday, July 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern. We do it live, folks. And uh, we're going to see and talk about Millennium. You know, one has to wonder. It's like the chicken and the egg. Which came first, the hole in the ozone layer or Cheryl Ladd's hairdo in this movie? <laughs> we'll find out. Tune in next time and find out. Ooh, all right. Okay, if you would, say goodnight in the, old day, the ways of the old days of radio. Good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to matineeminutia.com, click the YouTube icon for live video, enter Discord or chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. 